What's good? Welcome back to the Black and Published Podcast, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, and publisher. Today, we're talking with Disha Filia, the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which was a finalist for the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction and for the Story Prize in 2020 and 2021. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies focuses on Black women, sex, and the Black church. Disha is also the co-author of Co-Parenting 101, Helping Your Kids Thrive in Two Households After Divorce, which was written in collaboration with her ex-husband. Her work has been listed as notable in the Best American Essay series, and her writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Rumpus, Harvard Review, ESPN's The Undefeated, Ebony and Bitch magazines, and more. Disha is a Kim Bilio Fiction Fellow and a past Pushcart Prize nominee for essay writing in Full Grown People. In this conversation, we discuss the need for validation as writers, letting go of the goal of publishing to focus on getting better, and the role of the church in shaping Black women's sexual narratives. Black and published fam, welcome Disha Phil, y'all, to the show. So first question, Disha, when did you know that you were a writer? So I spent um, some time looking for validation for somebody to tell me I was a writer. <laughs> so um, so when did I kind of just know it for myself? You know, maybe like I, I reached out to... Um, a writer, a local writer. He's a veteran uh, reporter and columnist and editor here at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Tony Norman. And in uh, the early 2000s, might have even been 2000, I reached out to him and wanted advice on how to become a writer. And I don't know what all else I said in that email, but one of the things he said when he wrote me back was, you're already a writer. And that just you know, I just, you know, you probably could have like, you know, lit a room with me. I just lit up when he said that. Um, and so I think it's sort of that uh, recognition that can, that can help, but then there still has to be a moment where you stop looking for permission and, and validation. Um, and I'm not exactly sure when, but maybe it was, um, like a few years after that, I started writing a column for a site called Literary Mama. And every month I wrote a parenting column. Um, usually it was about being an adoptive parent because uh, my youngest child is um, adopted. And, um, and so maybe, you know, having that regular writing gig, um, maybe that was the moment. So it solidified something for you that you maybe didn't want to accept? Oh, it's not, oh, I wanted that. I absolutely wanted it. I just didn't think it was a thing that I had the freedom to simply claim. You know, I was looking for the validation and the credentialing. You know, there's sometimes people don't feel like they are a real writer or they can call themselves a writer until they've published or until they've published and made money. Like there's always some arbitrary measure because 
unlike a lot of things, you know, all of us can write, <laughs> you know, all of us can't, you know, oh, I guess you could say all of us can dance or whatever, but, um, you know, but with writing this, this something else, you know, because of the running joke that so many people have a novel in their, you know, a side uh, nightstand drawer and that sort of thing. And so there's all of this sort of, you know, this question of, of validity. Um, but I think I just got to the point where it started to feel like I was doing what I wanted to do in part, you know, writing regularly. I had relationships with writers, the other literary mama columnists and editors. We worked very closely together. It was like having a regular writing workshop. Um, that felt very writerly to me. Um, and that, I will say, that was not a paid position, um, the, that column get, columnist gig, but it did lead to some paid um, positions in print. Um, so it wasn't the money. I think it was, you know, just the being part of a community of writers made me, made me feel like this is real. I'm really doing it. What did you learn from that experience of your regular column for Literary Mama mm -hmm. that helped you along in some of your other gigs in writing? It really, um, the main thing is that it taught me to love revision and it taught me to love the, that writing is rewriting. Um, and that like Anne Lamont said, we all write shitty first drafts. It's just, you know, unavoidable. Um, and so I think that was the biggest thing to, you know, to get away from this idea of wanting people to think I was a good writer and wanting people to like what I wrote and tell me it was good, but wanting people to give me something even more important, which is um, the feedback and some guidance that would help me take a good piece of writing. Sorry, that's my dog. A good piece of writing and make it better um, or take a piece of writing that's just not working and give me feedback that can help me make it work. So um, I, I, that experience taught me to focus less on publishing, getting published, and more on getting better. Um, so, so that was the biggest takeaway. The other thing from a very practical standpoint is um, being edited on a regular basis, you know, just that that's the work of it, and then rewriting every month. And then also um, the columnists read each other's work and gave feedback. So critical reading also helped me to grow as a writer because often you can see the problems in somebody else's writing that you can't see in your own. But there was also just some learning about writing, the craft of writing that I think happened through osmosis by having those um, exchanges with my fellow columnists about their work and then their insights on my work. In that back and forth, I was really growing as a writer as well. And it seems like it was a safe space as well for you to do that growth. Yes, you know, it was not a classroom kind of environment. Everybody um, was a mother, everybody had their own lives and, and were really busy. Um, and so, and we were writing very personal things. And so um, we all had skin in the game, I guess. Um, and so it had a different kind of feel. And also, you know, it was one of those things where the, I think the editors for Literary Mama were very intentional about who they brought into that columnist community. And so it was all people with good intentions and all people who, um, there was no competitiveness. There was just none of that. 
did the experience with Literary Mom, I know you said it led to some other paid gigs, but did that also kind of plant the seed for your book, Co-Parenting 101? Um, eventually, yeah. I mean, it, it, I was not thinking about, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking about nonfiction, much less writing about parenting. I started writing fiction, but in that time when I was like, I just need to get published to make this, you know, make this real. Um, I was looking everywhere for publishing opportunities and this opportunity to uh, be a columnist at Literary Mama popped up and I was like, I'll take it. It's nonfiction, but I'll take it. Um, and then publish, uh, not publishers, I guess, editors of print publications saw my columns and then it led to invitations to write. Um, it was a parenting book review roundup for the Washington Post, where I reviewed a set of five different parenting books for them, but you know, all at once. And then another opportunity came with um, Wonder Time magazine, which is no longer being published, but it was Disney's um, effort to do a parenting magazine that was beyond sort of like diapers and feeding, but like really, um, you know, talking to parents' brains and talking about meatier subjects. And so when they were in their um, pre-launch phase, one of the editors there saw my column and they were looking for, you know, people who wrote about parenting in fresh ways. And he felt that I would make good contributions. And so I could, I think I wrote maybe three pieces for them before they folded um, when the economy collapsed in like 2008. And so that, kind of branded me as someone who wrote about parenting. And then from there, it was um, pretty easy to then build the co-parenting brand and platform that we built um, in order to be in a good position to get a book deal for what became the co-parenting book. Is your background in journalism or writing or anything like that? Nope. My undergraduate degree um, from Yale is at is in economics. And then I went to um, uh, maybe a couple of years after graduation, I was, I took, was uh, in a master's for teaching, master's in teaching program at uh, Manhattanville College. And I taught elementary school for a couple of years, but I don't have degrees in writing or communication or anything like that. All right, I gotta back up. So how do you okay. go from economics and teaching to- yeah parenting writing and then <laughs> we're going to get to it the secret lies of church ladies. right that's a long journey okay yeah um i you know it, part of it was being a first generation college student who really didn't understand the concept of liberal arts and how you could you know kind of explore and learn and do what you want to do like for me that was like what white people did um you know, finding yourself and discovering your passage, pa your passions. For me, it was you go to college to get a good job, to make money and take care of yourself and be self-sufficient. And, um, and so I didn't really see like a buffet of choices. I was like, well, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a lawyer. Um, nothing in the sciences, because that is not my ministry. Um, and I just didn't see a lot of options, uh, not because they weren't there, but just, I just, my, you know, I had such a small worldview about what I could do. And so I thought, business, that sounds good, you know? And then um, because um, speaking of Florida, as we were earlier, um, 
my one of the other schools that I was considering after high school was Florida A&M. And had I gone to FAM, I would have gone through their business program. And so I was like, okay, business. And then Yale doesn't have an undergraduate business major. So I was like, mm, economics, close enough. It's not even, it's not the same thing at all. But I was like, I'll choose that. And so that was my major and I didn't enjoy it at all. And I did the, the, you know, the bare minimum courses that you had to take to be able to declare the major. And then I filled my course load with everything else that I actually cared about, like African-American history and, you know, gender studies and that sort of stuff, not knowing that, like, I could actually major in those things and, yes, still get a job after college. Like, I, I all of that was just lost on me. Um, and so my first job out of college was for a management consulting firm. Um, it was like good money and all of that stuff. And I hated it. I hated everything about it. I didn't care anything about what I was doing. I wasn't didn't, I just wasn't feeling it. And um, in undergrad, I, my college work study job was at career services. And um, so I was providing admin and clerical support for that office. And so when all the recruiters would come year after year, um, I got to know them because I would set up their interviews with students and different events and stuff like that. I just did all the admin. So one of the people who would come every year um, was this woman who was the uh, equal employment opportunity officer for the town of Greenwich. And they had Greenwich, Connecticut, which is very white. And um, they had a special program for, um, for uh, people of color to try and recruit more teachers of color to Greenwich. And so if you came there, they would pay for you to get your master's in one year and then uh, your master's in teaching. And then um, while you were getting concurrent, you would be in the classroom working with a master teacher and then doing your student teaching. And then you could be a building sub for the other half of the year. And then after that one year, be in a position to have your own classroom and be teaching the following year. And when Michelle would approach me when I was an undergrad, I was like, <laughs> I'm not teaching, you know, like, cause you know, teaching as a profession has changed in our community so much. Cause it used to be for black folks, like a teacher was revered, you know? My mother's a um, teacher. Yeah. You know? And so from that to when I told my mother, I was going back to school to be a teacher. She was like, so then you're going to be a principal. Like it was just <laughs> like, you couldn't just, just, you know, be a teacher. Um, but that was something that I cared about. Um, I, I was like, I've always been bookish and, and um, as a kid, I used to play school and I was always a teacher and like, I dreamed about that kind of thing. But then it was all, it was sort of became clear as I got older that teaching wasn't something you aspired to, that it was like a default kind of thing. And that is so not true, you know, but um, having done the thing that I thought would be great it had all the money and all of the prestige and it left me empty I was like well I'm going to do something that I actually care about so I taught for a couple of years in Greenwich and then my um, then husband and I moved to Pittsburgh um, because we got tired of the pace of life in New York and Connecticut because he was working on Wall Street at the time and um, and then when we decided to move here and start a family I decided that you know I was going to be a stay-at-home mom and that's when I started writing when I had a two-year-old who did not nap <laughs> and like writing was like something I could do for myself um and it was just like a little part of the day it started as just a little corner of the day that was just for me and I was um 
uh, as I've been saying in some of these interviews, I was not happy. I was dissatisfied, but I wasn't comfortable writing nonfiction about my own dissatisfaction. So I gave it to these other characters. <laughs> I gave it to these characters and I started writing fiction and creating these worlds where there were these women who were as miserable as I was, you know, but they weren't me, you know, they were older and they were more matronly. They were how I felt, but they were always older and they had these ties to the church, but not because I was like, I'm going to write about church ladies, but because those were the women that were so fresh in my imagination and in my memory, um, having grown up in the church. And I have had, and still have obviously a lot of nostalgia about how I grew up and where I grew up. And so that's what I started writing first. And then everything else, the co-parenting book and all the nonfiction, it's all been one big detour <laughs> away <laughs> from fiction, decades long detour away from fiction. So, and then uh, returning to that fiction um, in, a, you know, one of those, it was three different novels I worked on in the early 2000s. And there was one that kind of had legs, but even that one, um, I just, it just didn't get off the ground. Well, I shouldn't say that. I just didn't finish. It was like two thirds of the way done, but I just couldn't, I wasn't connecting with it. And then I started writing these stories and it was my agent who saw the, that church lady, what she called church lady theme running through the stories. And then she suggested that while I wasn't getting anything done with the novel, that maybe being really intentional about these stories. I could put together a collection and that sounded really exciting to me. So did all of that detour and extra experience of mm -hmm. other things that you've done, how mm -hmm. has that informed your fiction? Because one of the stories in the collection is how to make love to a physicist, which mm -hmm. is, is not so much along the church lady vibe, but it sounds like all mm -hmm. those other things that you used to do that you brought mm -hmm. together. How has that, those other experiences informed your collection? Mm -hmm. I think the the totality of those other experiences, you know, it's it, they've built my confidence. Um, and so even though, you know, nonfiction and fiction and storytelling, there's some differences, key differences. Um, who I am, you know, has fund I've fundamentally grown in my confidence. I've grown in my skill. Um, I've grown in my willingness to experiment and, and, and I'm not as, you know, precious and fragile as a result of having written before and having been edited a lot. Um, you you learned, you know, that that's the beauty of it. You know, Toni Morrison like talks and has written in such glowing terms about revision. Um, and like, I want to be like her in that, you know, embracing in revision as a gift when somebody gives you feedback and revision as when the real work and the real fun starts. Um, it's taken me all of those other experiences, you know, to have that attitude um, and to also not take rejection personally um, and to be able to, you know, just push through and not, um, not be just thrown off my game just because something gets rejected. Um, but the, it's funny you say that about how to make love to a physicist because it is, you know, it's still very much the church stuff because of her, um, the main character's mother and her influence um, of it. Um, but that story itself was 
not inspired by anything from my past life, but my very current life. I, I had a crush on a physicist. And so <laughs> it was an unrequited crush though. So this was me just sort of writing like a, what could have been, even though, you know, I'm not Lyra and he's not Eric, but that concept of, you know, that, you know, this man, um, I was uh, really inspired by him, that first line, you know, how do you make love to a physicist? It has happens on Pi Day. I thought that was so clever. And then it was like almost a year before I went back to it. You know, it was just, that was the first line. And then I was like, you know, who are these people? Who's the physicist? Who's trying to make love to him? And I know they're going to make love on Pi Day, but, you know, you got to throw some obstacles in their path. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I have a... I have a journalism background. I write fiction. I recently left my journalism career and did the fiction thing full time. My son is five. So all he knows is either me working in TV. So are you going back to the TV station? He's like, no, dude. (laughs) Or writing at home. He's like, are you in your office? I'm like, I'm in my office. So, I mean, let's go back. Like, talk about getting to the point to love revision. Because I think it took a while for me to begin to love revision. And I think I'm just now getting comfortable with it as a writer. Like, mm-hmm. I know it's necessary, but I wasn't always comfortable with it until, like, maybe my latest novel came out. So mm-hmm. how, did, how did you get comfortable with in that revision process? I mean, it, I think it was just, it, was, it, ha- it happened concurrently with getting comfortable with myself. Um, sometimes... Uh, when we're uncomfortable with revision, it's because of something that's going on with us that has absolutely nothing to do with writing. And like in my case, it was needing that validation that this was real work, that this was worthwhile, that this wasn't just this indulgent thing. Though I will say it's okay for writing to feel indulgent. It's great. I think when writing feels indulgent. Um, but, you know, I, I was a stay-at-home mom um, and, you know, people would say I didn't have a job, but parenting is a job, as you know. Um, so there was all of that, like, how am I spending my time? And so that was the pressure to like, I got to, you know, this has got to be valid. Um, and, um, you know, getting published was a way to get validated. And so it was like, okay, point me to the quickest way to get published. That's what I wanted someone to do. Um, And, you know, um, my mentor, Tony, the one I mentioned earlier, you know, when I sent him my first attempt at a novel, um, you know, I was very disappointed. Um, I think I might even use the word devastated, that he didn't love it. And he didn't tell me it was good, even though I lied to both of us and was like, yeah, I want you to be honest, you know. Because what I thought was, honestly, he was going to be like, this is so good. You know, this is a masterpiece. Because I didn't, there was just so much I still didn't know about writing at that time. Um, And this was pre-Literary Mama, but just before that. And so eventually I realized that what he did in taking the time to mark, and he's old school, so he used a pencil. When he marked up uh, the chapters I sent him, that that was an act of love. And that was an opportunity to learn. And so one thing I've always been is a learner and, and I'm curious. And so when I changed my perspective around writing from I got to get published to I got to get better, it shifted. And when, it came, when I started to view revision as not like 
just a stumbling block and somebody telling me something wasn't good and a barrier between me and what I'm trying to do. And rather seeing it, it's like, this is just part of the process. This is, this is writing. Revision, you know, rewriting is writing. Um, once that changed and my, once my mindset changed, then I welcomed, you know, the feedback. Then I welcomed the opportunity to um, take my time with something and revise and, and experiment and, and, and even bring in an element of play with it. Um, because the stakes suddenly weren't so high. My whole sense of self wasn't tied to this piece of writing. My worth wasn't tied to this writing. I wasn't thinking about, oh my God, is this going to get published? It was like, what is this story? Who are these characters? How can I do them justice? Um, how can I write a story that I'm interested in? Because if I lose interest and nobody else is going to be interested, you know, and I started concerning myself with different questions. Um, and so then revision just became a seamless part of um, the process for me and not just seamless, but the part that I look forward to most. What, which one of the stories in the collection was the one that you think you revised the most? Um, let me think about that. Um, just doing a little quick survey in my head. I would say peach cobbler <laughs> um, because that story had a whole alternate ending the time frame was different like in the original version of it um, we meet the main character uh, Olivia and Trevor the pastor's son we meet them as adults in their 30s there's like an ending when he goes off to college and then we fl I flash forward to this really just one scene of them as adults. And I thought it was a beautiful scene. Um, you know, he comes to the bakery that she owns. She finds out that he knew all along. Uh, well, I don't know about all along, but he also knew about their your parents having had an affair. Their parents are both dead at this point. And then she takes him in the back to the kitchen of the bakery and they make a cobbler and they have sex. And I was like, this is just great. And nobody, <laughs> and the, my friends who read that version, nobody liked it. Nobody, nobody felt like that rang true. They couldn't say exactly why, but you know how it is. Sometimes you just have a feeling. And I think I was so in love with the scene that I wasn't seeing what they were seeing <laughs> that it just didn't it's it not didn't realistic fit. yeah and so somewhat somberly I decided okay I'm going to try a different ending I'm going to go back to the drawing board what if you know this is a game you play what if what if what if what if I end it with her as at her age at high school age um and it, it ends when she's done tutoring Trevor um, there was some things, this unfinished business, you know, so she had unfinished business with her mother. And so the scene, we, you know, I, the story now ends with a confrontation with between her and her mother. So I added that, but I also had to kind of look more closely at their relationship throughout to make that last scene. Um, if not neat, it was at least somewhat satisfying, I think frustrating, but like, you know, it was, it, it was, I think it was true in the sense that as a teenager, when we are stuck in situations where it's less than ideal, you don't have, often don't have anywhere to go. And that was, it was for her, she was kind of stuck, but you knew as soon as she could go, she was out, you know? 
Um, and I also use that as an opportunity to develop the relationship between Trevor and Olivia. In the original draft, um, their relationship remained platonic. And so then I went back in and I made their relationship be have more um, depth to it, which also then created the art opportunity for more heartbreak for her that then we have to also contend with. And so did you cutting that scene in the original draft of the meeting as adults then mm-hmm. end up parlaying into instructions for cheating married husbands? Yeah. I saw so, the line, you, I make the you, best peach cobbler. I was like, oh, I caught yes. that. I was like, oh, yes. okay. That was not planned. And I don't think it, um, if it connected at all, it was subconscious because there was so much time between those two stories. But, um, but I think Olivia stayed on my mind. She stayed on my mind, you know? And so I did not plan that. I'm writing, I was writing instructions and that when I got to the part and she says, and I make the best peach cobbler in town, I had the reaction that I think everybody else had, which was like, it's her, it's her, it's her. And I, and that felt right. You know, however we feel about her choices, it felt right to know at least where she landed. Yeah. I like when I read the line, I was like, ah! <laughs> was like, I can't put, I'm not going to post it on social media for those that haven't read it, but I was like, and when I get those little Easter eggs, I was like, yes. oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> what was the journey of taking these these stories written over this expansive length of time to mm-hmm. from just stories in your head and on the page to this National Book Award finalist book that we now have? Mm-hmm. You said the process? What was the journey like with the process, the whole thing? Um, I mean, it has truly been wild like wild is probably the best we're in a pandemic right a pandemic and so initially like a lot of writers who had books coming out it was like oh my gosh what does it mean to have a book in a pandemic like everything has shifted all of the ways that you um you know promote your book you can't go on a book tour you can't go to into bookstores you can't you can't you can't but what we all seem to have pivoted towards is, okay, here's what we can do. And one of the things was that we could support each other. Um, so like a lot of writers, I, and just people in general, I started buying books by writers whose books were coming out in, in March and, and, and so forth. Um, and so I, if I never bought another book, I think I still have enough <laughs> that I can read for the rest of my life because I wanted to support other authors that way. The other thing that happened is that people started offering writing workshops, myself included. And so I started taking these writing workshops and again, like connecting with the writer and, and reader community that way by offering and, and taking workshops. Um, and so building these relationships and then recognizing that, you know, going virtual was not, um, you know, not the, the death of, you know, of anything, you know, we actually got to see and connect with a greater audience than we would have otherwise. So that was, was the plus. Um, but, you know, so much of this is unexpected because, you know, when you write a collection or write a, a novel, write anything, you don't know how it's going to be received. So you don't know if you can sell it. So I sold it. Um, and then um, you don't know how readers are going to receive it. And then it was well received. 
Um, and then it's a small book. It's short stories, which are a hard sell and which doesn't have a huge audience and which often um, doesn't get a, the same attention from the folks who give the awards and things like that. It's on a university press. Um, so there was nothing in that experience that said, you know, this is just going to change your life, but it literally has changed my life. And so um, before I was nominated for the National Book Award, um, just the reader's responses to it just humbled me and made me so thankful because I, you know, mission accomplished. I wanted Black women to see themselves in this book and to be affirmed and to feel seen and heard. And they were, and that's what I heard. And I was like, I did it. I did it. That's what I wanted to do. And then everything else, all this, these other flowers and gravy. I mean, I guess it's mixing metaphors, but, you know, hearing from people that even though they aren't Black women, that they connected with a book. I knew that was possible, right? Because August Wilson and Toni Morrison said all along that Black life, the specificity of our stories and our experiences, we are the human story. And so, you know, we don't have to include white people in our stories in order for white people to connect with our stories, you know? Um, and so I knew it was possible. I didn't know if people would. And so then I started hearing from so many people who aren't Black women about the different stories or characters that were entry points for them. And that made me really happy too, because it started to feel like I, a conversation was starting around these themes. And the whole idea about getting free of the things that bind us, um, that's certainly universal. And so getting people talking about getting free or feeling validated or feeling like they don't have to be confined by all of the different binaries that the church and the larger culture tells us that we have to be limited by. You know, hearing people say that they're having conversations or they're going to start a conversation in their church, um, engaging with pastors around this has been completely edifying. Um, so it has been a wild ride. Um, the, against the backdrop of a pandemic, against so much death, against uh, a, this reckoning that it looked like we were going to have or starting to have around uh, race and injustice that um, has not been realized. Um, it has often been a bright spot for me. My book has been. And then hearing from other people that for them, it's been like a bright spot in this year. Um, you know, none of us could have predicted this and, and I just couldn't be happier about it. So I want you to read in a second, but I remember okay. um, I became familiar with you through the Binder Network on Facebook. Okay. And so then I remember you were posting about like the covers and then getting the advance. I was like, let me go follow her. <laughs> and then I did. And then once the book was out and you started posting uh, people's like reviews of it, I remember one review that said, Nobody told me they was going to be hunching in this book. And I was yeah. like, oh, I got to get it. <laughs> yeah. Come for the hunching, stay for the other stuff, you know? Yes, I was like, oh, <laughs> I got to get it. <laughs> but then when I got it, it was so much more. And I was like, oh, it's so good. Just like from the first oh. story, you like take the breath away. And then like you mentioned Thank the public potato salad. And I was like, oh, she knows home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes, it was, yes, it was, yes. It was it was amazing. So before we get into this reading, 
Let's set the scene for those who don't know about the secret lives of church ladies. This is the book description from the back cover. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies explores the raw and tender places where black women and girls dare to follow their desires and pursue a momentary reprieve from being good. The nine stories in this collection feature four generations of characters grappling with who they want to be in the world, caught as they are between the church's double standards and their own needs and passions. There is 14-year-old Jael, who has a crush on the preacher's wife. At 42, Lyra realizes that her discomfort with her own body stands between her and a new love. As Y2K looms, Carletta's same-time next-year arrangement with her childhood best friend is tenuous. A serial mistress lays down the ground rules for her married lovers, and in the dark shadows of a hospice parking lot, grieving strangers find comfort in each other. With their secret longings, new love, and forbidden affairs, these church ladies are as seductive as they want to be, as vulnerable as they need to be, as unfaithful and unrepentant as they care to be, and as free as they deserve to be. This is The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Okay, I am back. All righty, I'm ready. I got my book with me right here. I was like, yeah, let me get it. I will read from Snowfall. And since I'm going to start in the middle, I'll tee it up a little bit. Um, <clears throat> in this story, the narrator, Arletha, and her girlfriend, Rhonda, have moved from the South to a colder place. And um, this passage starts off with how, um, how they're kind of adapting or not <laughs> to this colder place. Um, and so for your reference, I'm at the bottom of page 77. We were born and raised in warmer places, Georgia and Florida. Warmer too in the residual charm, polite smiles and gentility of the white people whose ancestors owned ours. In the South, the weather does not force tears from your eyes, causing the faces of passing strangers to register worry about you for a millisecond. It's the wind, you want to tell them, but a millisecond is not enough time. In the South, the weather does not hurt you down to your bones or force you to wake up a half an hour early to remedy what has been done to your steps, your sidewalk, your driveway, and your car as you slept. But the South has hurricanes, they say. Yes, but not damn near daily, not for a full quarter of the year. You tell people up here that you're from the South and nine times out of 10, they say the same old thing. I'm sure you missed the sunshine. Rhonda and I both miss taking sunshine and easy morning commutes for granted. But what we really miss are the laughter and embrace of our mothers and grandmothers and aunties, kin and not kin. We miss the big oak tables in their dining rooms where, as kids in the 70s and 80s, we ate bowl after bowl of their banana pudding as they talked to each other about how much weight you gained, like you weren't even there. We miss helping them snap green beans and shell peas sitting at their kitchen tables watching the young and the restless on the TV perched on the pass-through. We miss how they loved Victor Newman, hated Jill Foster, and envied Miss Chancellor and how she dripped diamonds and chandeliers. 
We miss their bare brown arms reaching to hang clothes on the line with wooden pins. We miss their sun tea, brewed all day in big jars on the picnic table in the backyard, then later loaded with sugar and sipped over plates of their fried chicken in the early evening. We miss lying next to them at night in their four poster beds with two soft mattresses covered by iron sheets and three generation old blankets. We miss their house coats, perfumed with absorbing junior liniment and hints of the white shoulders they'd spritzed on from an atomizer that morning before church. We miss tracing the soft folds in their skin when we held their hands and watched our favorite TV shows in their beds, Dallas, Dynasty, Knott's Landing, and Falcon Crest. We miss how they laughed and were easy with each other, how their friendships lasted lifetimes, outlasting wayward husbands and ungrateful children. Outlasted that time, Alma caught Joe cheating and she whacked him on the top of the head with the sword he brought back from the war, but he told the people at the hospital he didn't know who did it. Outlasted having to hide your medicine bottles in your shoes because Otherwise, seven of your nine children were liable to steal them. We miss how they seem to judge everyone but themselves. Or maybe that judgment was in the nerve pills they procured from the Chinese doctor on Bay Street who didn't ask questions. We miss their furtive cups of brown liquor on Friday and unabashed cries for Jesus come Sunday. We miss their one gold tooth that made us wonder who they had been as young women. We miss their blue crabs, the shells boiled to a blood red in wash tubs atop bricks over makeshift fires built in the yard. The wash tubs reminded us of cauldrons full of rock salt and cayenne drenched water bubbling and rolling, mesh bags of seasonings and halved onions and peppers floating on top, along with potatoes and ears of corn. We miss how they stood over those cauldrons like witches, stirring a potion, with sweat beating on the tips of their noses and smoke swirling around their hands and wrists. They wielded long-handled spoons to press the frantic flailing crabs toward their deaths. We miss how they made our Easter dresses and pound cakes and a way out of no way. But we lost all those things when we chose each other. Only the memories remain which is why even though we grew up in different places, so many of our bedtime conversations start with, remember when? As we lie there in the dark with our nostalgia and nothing to distract us from it, not even each other, not anymore. Whew. I remember reading that story and it was like, I, I could relate to all of it because growing up in Chicago, I remember when I first started driving, I was 16, but getting up in the wintertime and going to warm up my car, move off the snow in Chicago, they got, we have a process called dibs. So if I shovel my spot from my car in front of my house and I put my chair in front of it, we're going to fight if you park in my spot. That's Pittsburgh too. <laughs> so I remember doing that and then coming down to Florida and then the hurricane conversation. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm okay with a hurricane. I have time to prepare, but I'm yes. okay with a blizzard that knocks <laughs> right. out the power. So I I related to that story so much. And then like the blue crabs and then you said Bay Street. And I was like, oh, I want to know what Chinese doctor is on Bay Street. To <laughs> 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 so go see what you were talking about. So it was a nice, I love that, that I, I like reading this, reading the collection, I was like, I could relate to it. And then mm -hmm. like, dear sister, I have a sister that I just found out about 
two, three years mm. ago. Yeah. Okay. And basically, my dad is still alive, but the call came. It's like, oh, I just want to tell you that you have a sister. She lives in New York. Word? You're like, what? <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> really? It was like, it was a, the, the quickest two, three minute conversation that I was notified I had a sister. I looked her up on Facebook. She, we had been friends for like two years. I had no idea who she was. Oh my God. So then I sent a message to her. I'm like, so, hey, I guess I'm your <laughs> sister. This is okay. weird, what's up? <laughs> So then reading your sister and all of the, the, the shenanigans, I was like, I know this story. <laughs> like saying, but I know this story. Right, right. <laughs> so I want to do a quick speed round and then I will let you go. Um, okay. What's your favorite book? Oh, gosh. I'm <laughs> terrible with superlatives. Um, I will pick one from my childhood. Daddy was a number runner by Louise Merriweather. I'm sorry, that makes me that makes me laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish people could see your beautiful smile right now. The way you just lit up when I said that. <laughs> yeah, that book. It was you know it's a coming of age YA novel. Um, the main character Francie is this black girl living in Harlem in nineteen in the nineteen thirties, and so you know our lives could not have been more different in many ways. But it was really the first time I saw myself in a book, and the first time I really experienced a book like taking you somewhere, a different place in time, which you know I needed um, to know that like my world was bigger than just outside my front door. All right. What's your, who's your favorite author? Ty, <laughs> Tony Morrison and James Baldwin. Okay. I feel like I knew one of those already. <laughs> We've got two more superlatives and then we'll, we'll let those okay. go. Favorite song? Oh gosh. Um, something by Prince. And it's like five songs in my head, but possibly um if I was your girlfriend and then your favorite movie oh that's a tough one um mm, let's see gosh um oh my goodness because <laughs> there's like different you know how it is like different seasons of your life you like different things um I'm gonna say the color purple because it's one that while I you know I do love it it was one that I remember thinking as a mother as a black mother I wanted my daughters to see and so you know um I remember watching that with them I also watched um house party with my girls so. <laughs> I don't know if, what kind of mother I am but that was also important for me for them to see but we won't talk about parenting my five-year-old has seen four out of six seasons of power and knows all the characters <laughs> by name and he's five so I'm not judging you here not at all <laughs> um okay store-bought or homemade potato salad homemade Public sweet tea or Publix lemonade? Ooh, lemonade. All right. What church do you prefer? Baptist, Pentecostal, Kojic, AME, or non-denominational? 
Oh, I'm going to go with the coach, like Koji, just for the music, <laughs> just for the music. Okay. One thing you want the saved and sanctified to stop doing. Oh, stop thinking that Jesus judges the people that they judge. And that Jesus wouldn't sit with the people that they refuse to sit with. And one thing you want them to start doing. Truly sitting with the people that Jesus sat with, right? Like if you read the Bible, you know, the people who were out there wild and Jesus like, let's have some wine, <laughs> break bread. Um, and just meeting people where they are. Um, like the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and not sort of seeing them through the lens of their sin, but seeing them and 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 also, you know, what the things that we now call consider sin. You know, what did Jesus consider sin? Um, and um, yeah, sitting with people and worrying less about what happens in their bedroom and more about whether or not they get justice in this world. All right, last question for the speed round. Do you miss the South? I do. I do miss the South, very much so. All right, and then my final question before I let you go. So you had this huge success with this collection. I know you're working on other things. When you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about you and your legacy? Ooh, I love this question. I would like someone to write that that I always centered Black women and that I always looked to Black women to see what was possible. And I tried to live my life so that other Black women could look at me, Black women and girls could look at me and see what's possible. I'm going to leave that there. Thank you, Disha. Big shout out and thank you to Disha Filia for being here on Black and Published today. So after our conversation, it was announced that the Secret Lives of Church Ladies will be getting the film treatment. Tessa Thompson has launched a new production company and inked a first look deal at HBO and HBO Max to executive produce two book adaptations, including The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Disha Filia will executive produce along with Thompson, as well as write the film adaptation. So big ups to Disha Phil, y'all. Make sure you check out Disha's latest short story collection, The Secret Lies of Church Ladies. And if you're not following Disha on the socials, please do so because she's got a lot of dope stuff coming up. She's at Disha Phil, y'all on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode of Black and Published and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. You can also rate, review, leave us a comment, a good one. We like those. And you can follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show. I'll holler at y'all next week. Peace.